Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections held at the Hagley Library, especially researchers who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of grants and fellowships of different kinds. One such scholar joins me today, Hugh Wood, is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Hugh, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes, so to speak. What is it that you're researching and writing about? Um, so my project deals with the relationship between different forms of violence, um, typically within civil society, within American civil society, and the way they relate to um, the development of state and federal governments. So the time period is between 1860 to 1895. And what we're looking to do is understand how um, the American political system and the American constitutional system organizes and manages its, manages violence within its territory because um, the way it does so is distinctly different from one, how European states do it, and two, what the conventional literature on the state and violence tells us about um, how that relationship should be performed, I suppose. Hmm. Well, what a fascinating subject. And you've picked a really interesting time period there, obviously, the Civil War and Reconstruction. Why was that um, your your sort of temporal focus? Um, well, it was a bit of a struggle, to be honest. The the reason for it being then was that there's a lot of violence going on, mm -hmm. as you've hinted at. So the project kind of has three strands. One is um, violence along the frontier. Uh, another is uh, violence in the South, so particularly lynching. And the third one, which is why I was at the Hagley, was to do with class violence. Um, so there's a lot going on in that period particularly. And what really struck me and I'll kind of go through a genesis of the project and then it will kind of make sense why I've ended up there. Sure. Um, was that the history of the American state, when you read it, doesn't actually have a huge amount of violence in. But American history generally obviously has a lot of violence and it has a lot of violence at almost every stage, whether you're in the colonial period, whether you're in the revolutionary period, the antebellum period. Civil War, Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, Jim Crow, um, even onwards. Um, so you, I kind of had a complete over-saturation of potential sources. Mm -hmm. So what I had to do was find um, case studies, events, um, people, institutions that hadn't been studied too, too much, but had been studied enough. Um, and then I would hope to be able to combine them into an original intervention. Um, hmm. So through that process, I ended up picking three case studies, um, the first of which starts in 1860 and the last of which ends in 1895, well, 1893, technically. So that's how we've ended up with that 35 year span. Um, and it also quite helpfully covers um, a series of quite large transitions, i.e., America moving from a rural to industrial um, society broadly, um, mm -hmm. lots of immigration, lots of uh, 
racial upheavals and so on and so forth. So that span allows me to do a lot, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you had mentioned the contrast between the American case of violence and civil society and the European. Could you perhaps elaborate upon that a little bit more? Yeah, so the central idea in European state theory, um, which I suppose, which would I trace back to Thomas Hobbes, hmm. um, who's 17th century political theorist, he wrote this fantastic book called Leviathan, um, which is still worth a read today. Um, and that's kind of the turning point and the, uh, I guess, what I would say the origin of the kind of modern state or how we think about the relationship between the individual um, and government now. Um, so there's Hobbes in the 17th century. We'll just fast forward a few hundred years and we get to a guy called Max Weber, who's a German sociologist. And he posits um, this pithy, fantastic definition of the state, which is, it is a monopoly over the legitimate means of force within a specific area. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a human community that claims that. Um, so the central thing with Weber is that the state is like a, uh, this is a ridiculous way to describe it, but I'll do it nonetheless. The state's <laughs> like a hoover and it sucks up all the violence. It centralizes it. It bureaucratizes it. Mm -hmm. um, and in so doing, it removes the relations of force between citizens. So individuals are divested of violence. So you're not allowed to punch people. You're not allowed to fight people. If you have a dispute of any kind, it could be a personal dispute or a business dispute. There is somebody who is an arbiter um, who is stronger than both parties. And those parties are kind of cowed by this uh, organization, the state. Mm -hmm. And through the law, they then um, peacefully resolve whatever dispute they've had. Um, I'm butchering all this, but anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll carry on. So we could refer... Simplification is necessary sometimes. Yeah, but I mean, uh, hopefully hopefully it's effective. So mm -hmm. broadly, you would refer to that uh, process as pacification. Um, yeah. And I think, which is a term that you see in a guy called Norbert Elias's work. Um, and he follows on from Max Weber. I like German sociologists. Um, and he says this process happens and the state ended up monopolizing violence from a kind of distinctly European context. So... You've got to imagine that Europe used to be like a thousand little petty fiefdoms full of mm. like kings and warriors and knights and they're all fighting. And he says that like eventually after all this fighting, smaller units become larger and larger units. So one fights another, it wins, it becomes larger. That larger unit fights another larger unit and so on and so forth until you end up with these large units which resemble something akin to the nation states we have today. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the central European story. Um, you get these huge social units which have centralised the violence. They have police forces, they have militaries. The police forces deal with domestic peace. The military deals with external kind of peace. And in the US, obviously, you don't have knights, you don't have warriors, you don't have fiefdoms, castles, kings, all that. Um, Yet we don't have a corresponding theory. We don't have a nice, pithy phrase like Weber's phrase, which is recognisable. And even non-historians, nobody, anyway, you know, it's a good phrase. We all, mm -hmm. And like, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And 
you know, you say that and you can kind of get the picture relatively easily of what's going on. Um, we don't get that in the US. Um, I forget what the question was. I've just been kind of spinning my wheels here. But um, Well, if that if that is the European model, how mm -hmm. does the American model, the American experience differ? Uh, essentially in that the divestment model, i.e. individuals not having violence because individuals having violence was seen as one, a threat to other individuals, but two, as a threat to the state, isn't quite followed. Mm -hmm. So in each of my three case studies, what we see is a political system which seems to be, if not necessarily encouraging, but definitely sometimes encouraging, at least tolerating a variety of violence within civil society, which just seems anathema to everything that Weber has said. Mm -hmm. um, so my first case study is in Idaho. And what do we have there? It's at the start of the Civil War. It's 1860, 3,000 miles away from Washington and, and all that sort of busy stuff. You have miners, almost all of whom are armed, going into land which is um, inhabited by indigenous people, um, by Bannock, Shoshone and Northern Bayou um, native populations. Mm -hmm. And these armed men go in and just kind of do what they want. And it's brutal, horrible violence. Um, and as a result of that, the US as a political entity, it gains land. Um, and it gains productive territory because these men are mining. So when they go in, they mine, they get their gold. But not only that, they have to um, be fed, they have to be clothed, they have to bring in picks and shovels and wagons and all this other stuff. Um, and the army is there. But it's one, not capable of stopping these things. So it doesn't physically have the capacity to stop these men from doing these things to these people. Mm -hmm. But it's also broadly uninterested in doing and stopping these men from doing these things because of the benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, they go in, do the kind of dirty work. Um, and we could refer to these along like kind of slightly colonial theory lines. A guy called Patrick Wolfe referred to these folk as the frontier rabble. And they're the kind of principal means of how settler states such as the US expanded. Um, so it's private actors doing violence and the government just being like, OK. Um, mm. And they do this not just in unorganized territory. I put that in square quotes, but on a, a federal reservation, which the government ostensibly has granted its protection over. But all that just kind of falls away in the face of these um, other concerns, i.e. gaining territory. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first kind of instance where individuals are not divested of violence. And we see this, This is that's just one case, but we see this all along as the US expands westward. There are uh, armed occupation acts where um, men are incentivized to take their families into certain areas so long as they are armed because those areas will function as a buffer zone between the US and other polities. Homestead Acts, homesteaders are obviously armed and so on. Of course, we have the Second Amendment, um, which is completely different to the, to Europe. So in the second case study, again, the Hagley one, um, mm -hmm. which is all about the railroad riots in Reading, mm -hmm. we have, um, which is in 1877, so about 15 years after uh, the events in Idaho, you have corporate militias, which is a private company, um, which has got its own armed guards fighting crowds and men who are in unions who also have guns. Um, 
and other weapons. And you have the Coal and Iron Police, who are this kind of fascinating institution, um, which I didn't know a huge amount before I came in. I still don't know a huge amount. But how they operate doesn't fit at all neatly with how we think about uh, police forces, say, in Europe, typical mm. constabularies or whatever. And that's because they're not paid for by the state, but they are... Um, sanctioned by the state legitimized by the state commissioned by the state so what happens when a railroad company like the reading and this is what i've seen and uh, from from the research that i did at the hagley um mm -hmm. it's a whole kind of process by which this happens so there's a statute in 1865 which um says that railroads can have police forces and commission these men and the reading railroad did this gleefully and you send a dollar to the governor and the governor says here's your policeman that's it you get a man's name you send him the dollar and you have a policeman <laughs> which is just wild and you're paying for him you're paying for him, what he's doing um and what he's doing is arresting people along railroad lines and with there's a lot of literature on coal um coal policing in the coal fields of Pennsylvania, the Molly Maguires, various other labor movements, which were crushed by, amongst others, the Reading's head, Franklin Gowan. There's less so about the line itself. Hmm. So what these men are doing is arresting people along the lines for petty crimes, like uh, stealing coal, stealing copper, um, stealing rides, literally stealing rides along the trains by just hopping on, being between carriages, not paying a fare. So I was looking at this and you're looking at these arrest records and you're like, okay, they're doing that. So there's these policemen empowered to do so by the state under what statute are being, are they being uh, arrested? Well, there's a couple and the Reading company starts putting these through and there's letters again from the Hagley sent from a state um, uh, congressman, I suppose you'd call it. Mm -hmm. um, a state lawmaker writing to the Reading Company being like, oh, would you like a law so we can do this? And he literally says, R write it yourself and then I'll get it through. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they do. So mm -hmm. the Reading writes it. And that statute criminalizes what we've talked about, taking coal, taking rides, uh, taking other small things. So what's happening is that these policemen who are private individuals empowered by the state but paid for by the railroad companies are arresting people under a statute put through the Pennsylvania legislature by the um, Reading Company itself. So you're arrested under one of these statutes, statutes, Greg, say for stealing, I don't know, some coal. You're then hauled before a justice of the peace who's like a local law enforcement official who then sends you to jail or uh, finds you uh, X amount of money. But the justice of the peace's fees are also paid for by the company. So all that's happening or what is happening is that the state is providing uh, officers such as the Colonial Police, the justice of the peace and ultimately a county jail but the Reading company itself is doing everything else. 
So it's completely kind of arrogated to itself the power to um, imprison and to punish, which doesn't fit easily with, again, a kind of Weberian system of the state doing all of these things. But it does fit quite nicely with what we think the American state does, which is draw resources from within civil society so it doesn't have to pay uh, to do them itself. Mm. So you could look at this as like the company taking uh, kind of acting as a parasite upon public authority. But you could also see it that the, the state of Pennsylvania is like more than happy for the company to do this because the company is removing like drunks and beggars and other minor thieves from Pennsylvania's streets. And Pennsylvania doesn't have to pay anything for it. So it's this kind of like almost symbiotic relationship between capital and state. Mm-hmm. Um, which results in like a very specific form of order, but is actually quite beneficial for both. Um, so that's kind of the second case study, looking mm-hmm. at private policing. Um, and the third one um, is lynching, which I've not thought about a great deal, so I will speak on less. Um, that's kind of my next plan as I move mm-hmm. forward. I'm still in the midst of this. So this is actually quite helpful to just talk about it and talk through. Um, sure. <laughs> but it's... Obviously, an extravagantly violent, um, horrifically brutal um, events, incident, um, phenomenon, which doesn't really have analogues elsewhere. Um, I've I've just been reading a book about, um, you know, why doesn't South Africa have lynching, but the American South does. the answers there's a, a strong federal state in South Africa mm. which is doing some of those things but you don't have that so you've got a government much like it's happy to tolerate people along the frontier doing horrible violence to indigenous populations and it's happy for corporations to provide order in specific areas in the south it's happy for or not necessarily happy but um not willing to intervene in the way that it does during labor disputes say in the north the federal government gets really involved as you're aware with the 1877 railroad strikes um but it doesn't do that for lynching because it's insulated by federalism but there's a calculus happening there in that it is willing to get involved in some places um but isn't willing to get involved in other places and why what is it basing those decisions on mm-hmm. Where Weber talks about legitimate violence and violence being legitimate or illegitimate, where is American state violence sourcing its legitimacy from? That's kind of an open question um, in some ways, and one which I'm hoping to answer in kind of the fourth component of the dissertation, which Mm -hmm. is directed theoretically to that question of, if not a monopoly on violence, what? If we're not divesting individuals on violence, what do we have um, and what are the implications of that um, moving forward? Um, and that's the kind of theoretical intervention I'm hoping to make by thinking about all these case studies together. And I don't want to suggest that my thinking on any of those three things is necessarily hugely original. Um, there's a lot of literature on uh, frontier violence. There's a lot of literature on racial violence, particularly in the South. And there's a lot of literature on labour violence, though less recently, to be fair. What there's not is a kind of um, 
model, a conception of how to think about these things together, and especially in terms of um, American state development, whether that be the federal government or state government. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what we're intending to do um, with the fourth with the fourth element, the dissertation. But we're not mm -hmm. there yet. So we're talking a year and a half, and I might be able to give you a bit more insight. Um, but yeah. Well, it's a series of questions that really are do beg for an answer and beg for explanation, um, particularly the very deep-seated American cultural glorification of violence that remains with us to this day and uh, shapes our lived experience in this country. Um, I'm wondering whether um, your study has some implications for the present moment uh, when American civil society really is being convulsed by violence. Yeah, I mean... I think it does. Um, I haven't thought about these in depth because I've been dealing with the sources that I sure, got sure. from your fantastic <laughs> archive. Um, but yeah, my kind of big pie in the sky big idea mm -hmm. is that a lot of the mechanisms which allowed America to expand so rapidly um, and that involved massive kind of public, private, cooperation and a real blurring of the line between those two things mm -hmm. where it becomes incredibly difficult to discern what is state action what is not state action who is the state and who isn't the state um in kind of conventional barbarian terms a lot of those mechanisms which i have discussed with the case studies so settlers along the frontier um companies being able to access arms regulate their own territory kind of outside of the government um, and kind of outsourcing racial order state in the South to local communities. Um, those mechanisms allowed what was an enormous and expanding polity to remain remarkably regulated and not free of conflict. I don't want to suggest that at all. Um, but for that conflict to kind of work for the state mm -hmm. and not be oppositional to it and mm -hmm. to actually benefit it. Mm -hmm. So by kind of loosing violence over the American continent, um, America was able to settle it incredibly quickly, introduce a set of economic relations, i.e. capitalism, over it very quickly mm -hmm. um, and kind of function remarkably well for what was a relatively kind of new state. But now we're seeing a lot of those mechanisms which worked in the past kind of come back um, to bite America, if you were to put like a, uh, a nice little phrase on it, I suppose, uh, in the sense that um, we've obviously seen with January 6th, mm -hmm. right wing militias, which just don't exist anywhere else. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like if we disagree with an election in the UK, there's like a bunch of armed men who appear from Yorkshire and like go to London and mm -hmm. try and storm Downing Street, you know. It's just completely alien to us. So that's kind of one way, this militia movement, which has official sanction and can exist, you know, mm -hmm. because of the Second Amendment and because of how in the early days, um, the American kind of political system was suspicious of like centralized power. Um, so that's kind of one way. So there's these kind of civil violences which exist and are troubling to good political order now. Another one is... Um, I'm not going to compare them, but fairly horrible in that if we look at um, Trayvon Martin's killing, after mm -hmm. that, there was a proliferation of stand your ground laws 
mm-hmm. um, in other states. And that draws on a long lineage of, um, I'm thinking about Robert uh, Maxwell Brown, a historian from the 70s, 60s and 70s. He wrote this book called Violence and Values, No Duty to Retreat. Mm. So in um, Britain and British common law tradition, the only time that you have recourse to self-defense, violent self-defense, is when your back is completely against the wall and there's nowhere else that you can go. And that is your only option. Mm. And that is a duty to retreat before self-defense becomes um, legitimate and okay to do. Whereas in America, um, Brown describes, there's no duty to retreat. So it's another instance where violence is kind of being ceded to individuals within civil society with awful consequences for specific populations um, who are going to um, suffer as a result of these things and for people who will be able to fall back on those kind of legal justifications for whatever crimes they happen to commit. So those are just a couple of ways, but it's going to be really challenging um, to deal with, you know, a civil society which is so boisterous and so incredibly violent um and has such capability to do violence um and obviously the kind of uh not necessarily obviously but i mean school shootings mm. it's an instance it's it's a failure of the state to monopolize the means of violence to such mm-hmm. a degree that it can't protect children in obviously that most sacred environments which is the school mm-hmm. you know um so in Weberian terms that's just atrocious you know mm-hmm. um and also in Hobbesian terms but yeah so those uh, would be three ways yeah um I'm wondering because Weber was so concerned with explaining the genesis of the nation state mm-hmm. and his um his conclusions don't apply so well to the United States perhaps it's because the United States is not a nation state at all, but rather much more of an imperial project. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something there. Um, Though I suppose like Germany, you would also see as an imperial project at some points. But Mm -hmm. really, what what I want to get at is that the Weberian idea, it it just doesn't hold. Mm -hmm. There's there's something there in that um, states having control of violence seems critical to ensuring social order, which is not necessarily what's happened in the US. Um, but we need a better way to describe what we're seeing because the Bayberry model just falls apart because it relies on this kind of strict dichotomy between state and not state. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, we just we just don't have that um, mm-hmm. in, in a kind of comprehensible way. Um, and therefore, a lot of these things we see today are, are just not legible within that system. Um, so once I've kind of figured out a model of how we can make that legible, I might be able to speak a bit more on um, the kind of implications for how you could use that to ameliorate um, contemporary ills, less so now. Um, but yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, Hugh. It's a great project and uh, with some really fascinating implications. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to talk You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online 
you can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>